Who are the real people we consider our sages? Who were they in life? What is the legacy they left us? Join Rabbi Danny Saxton for the next hour as he explores the lives of our Torah giants, the spiritual geniuses who shaped the way we approach Judaism today. That's focus on our sages right now on 101.9 High FM. Good afternoon and welcome to Soul to Soul. Always wonderful to share some thoughts with you on a Wednesday afternoon. Today is the 10th of Shvat, the 10th day of the month of Shvat in the Hebrew calendar. And today is the yacht site of Rabbi Shalom Shirabi, otherwise known as the Rashash. He was born in Yemen in the year 1720 and he traveled through India to Damascus, finally reaching Eretz Israel. He was a master Makubal, a very great Kabbalist, a master of Kabbalah, and uh, he actually wrote a prayer, a book of davening, a book of, of, of tefillah called Nahar Shalom, which includes mystical meditations on various prayers and on mitzvahs that we do. Um, one of the great Kabbalists of the last 500 years within the Jewish people, the Rashash is buried on the Mount of Olives, on Har Hazesim. Um, tomorrow, being the 11th of Shvat, is the yacht site of Rabbi Noach Weinberg. Rabbi Noach Weinberg was the founder of Aisha Torah. Um, he was uh, w- uh, widely regarded as the father of the Baal Tshuva movement that has profoundly transformed the Jewish people um, in the last century. As many, many Jews. Before that, it was quite unheard of. Probably before the last uh, 70, 60 years, unheard of Jews who came from a secular background to return to religious observance. But in the last uh, 60, 70 years, it's become a massive wave within the Jewish people. And one of the protagonists uh, within that movement uh, was Rav Noach Weinberg. Uh, Rabbi Weinberg started Eishat Torah in 1974 with just five students in his apartment in the old city of Jerusalem. And under his leadership, Aisha Torah grew to have branches on five continents across the globe with innovative educational programs like the Discovery Seminar, Jerusalem Fellowships Leadership Program, Hasbara Fellowships for Israel Activism, um, Honest Reporting is a project of Aisha Torah, and of course, Aish.com which is an outstanding website with fascinating and penetrating ideas of authentic ideas of Judaism. Rabbi Weinberg's warmth, wit, extraordinary wisdom and sense of responsibility, um, uh, as well as his love for all of the Jewish people, has helped tens of thousands of Jews get in touch with a more meaningful life and experience a relationship with God. Much of his wisdom is encapsulated by his famous 48 Ways to Wisdom, which is a lecture series which uh, has been printed in a book as well. So we remember tonight and tomorrow on the 11th of Shvat, the great Rabbi Noach Weinberg and his tremendous contribution to the Jewish people. So moving through the Jewish calendar and remembering important dates um, within the Jewish calendar, we come to the 12th of Shvat. So we spoke about today, the Yotzad of the Rashash, tomorrow the Yotzad of Noah Weinberg, and on Friday the 12th of Shvat 
is the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz by the Russian army. The gas chambers in Birkenau, otherwise known as Auschwitz II, were blown up by the Nazis in November 1944 in an attempt to hide their atrocities. In January 1945, the Nazis began to evacuate the facility um, and uh, most of the prisoners were ordered on death marches in which thousands died and which lasted for a number of weeks. In the end, there were about 7,000 people that survived Auschwitz. That's all, only 7,000. And over a million people were murdered by the Nazis in Auschwitz. So the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz is the 12th of Shvat, which is this coming, um, this coming Friday. And it's quite, you know, 78 years it was liberated ago, but it's, it's just mind-boggling, very difficult to get our heads around the concept, the reality that over a million people were murdered in one place. It was industrial murder of a scale that the world has never seen before. It's uh, the factory of death, um, which Auschwitz was. There were a number of other extermination camps, as we know, but Auschwitz was the biggest and the most efficient um, within the Nazi-occupied Europe. I've been to Auschwitz, and you know there were so many feelings and emotions. Maybe I'll share with you one of one or two of them. Um, when one goes to Auschwitz, um, there are two sections. There's Auschwitz One, which started out as a slave labor camp. Um, and developed into a extermination camp. The first gas chambers were actually experimented and built there at Auschwitz I, and they still remain there today. So one can actually walk through those gas chambers, which is just an indescribable feeling of, uh, of terror and of uh, disbelief. It's almost surreal that human beings could do this to each other. And also part of Auschwitz I, there um, are it's a, it's a museum today, and there are artifacts. One of the most moving parts of it is actually um, the display of shoes, thousands and thousands of pairs of shoes, shoes of little children, shoes of adults, shoes of all shapes and sizes and colours, and it does give one perhaps a feeling and an insight into, you know, each of those shoes represent a human being with a life and a family and a story and it's just it's just unbelievable it makes it a little bit more personal seeing people's shoes um in fact there's an interesting idea i heard from rabbi pesach kron um, one of the blessings we say at um in the morning we, we say 14 blessings every morning the what else called birkas hashachar and one of the blessings is Blessed are you Hashem, our God, the King of the world, who made all of my needs, who took, takes care of all of my needs. And um, our sages say that that's referring to our shoes, the shoes that we're wearing. It's a great need that a person has. And Hashem gives us shoes. We have shoes to wear. So each day we thank Hashem for those shoes. So uh, on a simple level, that means that, you know, you can't really go out into the world and interact with the world without a pair of shoes. 
Um, otherwise, you can't do anything. You can't move. You can't go. But on a deeper level, there's a famous story about Rav Zusha. Rav Zusha, uh, who was a great Hasidic Rebbe, he was the brother of the Noam Elimelech, Rav Elimelech of Dijensk. So Rav Zusha was known to be somebody who understood the plot of, of the average Jew and the struggle of day-to-day living. And a Jew once said to him, do we even say this blessing of Shah Sali Kultaki if you don't have shoes? And he answered him, Razusha, and he said, imagine there's a king and the king wore a fancy suit and he doesn't wear it anymore. So he gives it to somebody on the street. But let's say that person is smaller than the king. So all that person will do is take it to um, the tailor and will tailor that jacket to fit them. But when it comes to shoes, you can't tailor shoes. You can't, if you have shoes that are not your size, so there's nothing you can do. They won't fit you because shoes are exactly the size of the wearer. Each shoe that a person wears is just right for them. And shoes represent, therefore, that Hashem gives us exactly what we need. And that our life that we're going through and the experiences that we face and the abilities that we have and the background that we have been born into, they all are exactly tailor-made to what our Neshama needs to what our journey, the journey of our soul is. And Hashem weighs it up and perfectly puts us in the positions and situations we need to be, just like shoes. So Hashem gives me everything that I need in order to achieve the tikkun, in order to achieve the growth, in order to achieve the development that I'm supposed to have in my life in this world. And so when you think of that idea and you look at those shoes that are in Auschwitz and you think that each one represents a unique human being with their own journey, with their own life, with their own challenges and experiences. It becomes more personal and it is absolutely heartbreaking and devastating. Um, another thought about shoes is there's a, an interesting story about a, a, a survivor of Auschwitz and the, that person's pair of shoes, which I'll share with you in a moment after this. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. So we're talking about the anniversary, the 78th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz in 1945, which is coming up on Friday, the Hebrew date, the 12th of Shvat. And... Uh, we mentioned one of the displays at Auschwitz is is the shoes, is many thousands of pairs of shoes, a big, big room all the way to the ceiling with shoes in it. So there's an amazing story I heard about a Holocaust survivor and his shoes. There was a boy who was taken to Auschwitz, and um, the winters of Poland are freezing cold, and he would take off his boots before he went to bed. He was in the barracks, obviously, and put aside instead of being immediately exterminated Upon arrival, he was a young, strong boy, and he was put to work to slave labor. And one night, an SS uh, guard came into the barracks and saw his shoes by his bed, and they were nice shoes, and he took them away. And this boy was devastated because it was the only thing he had left from his old life. His parents had given him those shoes, and it just symbolized that everything had been taken away, everything was gone. His world and his life were shattered. And he started crying. And one of the Jewish guards who was there heard him crying and went over to the boy and said, 
what's bothering you? Why are you crying? I mean, it's a, you know, obviously there was a lot bothering him. But he said, why are you crying tonight? And he said, because my shoes, which were my only connection to my parents, have now also been taken from me. And he said, don't worry, I will get you a pair of shoes. And the next day he brought him a pair of shoes. And he put on those shoes and, you know, there was life-saving. If you didn't have shoes in the European winter, you would get frostbite, you would die. It wouldn't take long for you to die in those um, conditions, in those circumstances. And so he, these shoes really saved his life. But he, after having worn them on the first day, looked into the soles and he saw the soles of these shoes were make made from the parchment of a Torah scroll. And so he said that each day that he stepped in those shoes, he felt like he was trampling on the Torah, on God's Torah and on the mitzvahs. But he didn't have a choice if he didn't walk in those shoes, so he certainly would have died. And so he promised himself, he said, Hashem, if I survive this uh, hell, this unthinkable ordeal, I will um, dedicate a new Sefer Torah to you and to the Jewish people. And hopefully that will be a tikkun. That will be a vindication of me standing on these souls that are made from Torah scrolls. And he did survive the war and he did actually dedicate the Sefer Torah. He was a, not a man of means. He lived in Flatbush in New York and it took him many, many years to save the money, which you know, we know a new Sefer Torah today is very, very expensive to commission. And, uh, he, he was able to dedicate his Sefer Torah, which was a tribute and a tikkun, a rectification of trampling on the soles of those shoes. Um, so we remember, you, there's so much to say, you know, about Auschwitz, about the Holocaust, about how the Holocaust happened, what actually happened in the Holocaust, how the Nazis systematically murdered more than six million Jews uh, one and a half million children. It's just unthinkable how human beings could behave in such a, a monstrous way. And there's so much to say about the lessons that we should learn from the Holocaust. And I always repeat one important lesson, a lesson that Menachem Begin, who was the Prime Minister of Israel, would often repeat. He said if there's one lesson to learn from the Holocaust, and he survived the Holocaust, and his family were all wiped out and murdered in the Holocaust, Begin said that we should learn from the Holocaust that when our enemies say they want to destroy us, we should take them seriously. We shouldn't brush aside those threats, but we should listen to them and do all we can to prevent our enemies from being able to carry out those threats because they're very serious about them. And so when we hear the Iranians talking and saying that they are seeking nuclear weapons and that they would fire nuclear weapons upon Israel and that it would be a uh, Ahmadinejad, who was the prime minister of Iran, said that it would be a small price to pay because Iran is one a state of a Muslim state um, amongst many, many Muslim states. There are many, many Muslim states that exist in the world. But Israel is the only state of the Jewish people. And so it would be worth destroying them with nuclear weapons. And when Hamas say that they want to murder every Jew in Israel, and when Islamic Jihad says part of their charter that they won't stop 
until they have liberated Palestine, Palestine from the infidels, from the Jews. So we should take all of these things seriously and we should not um, ignore them, but realize that they are real threats and that the Jewish people definitely have a right to and a necessity to defend themselves against these existential threats that we hear being repeated constantly even in our times. So let's move on. Um, let's now talk. So that was the 12th of Shvat, which is Friday. On Sunday night and Monday, we have Tubishvat, the 15th of Shvat. So 15 in Hebrew is Tesvav, it's the letter Tes and Tesvav, which is 9 and 6, that's 15. So Tubishvat, 15th of Shvat, is called Rosh Hashanah Le'ilanos, is the Rosh Hashanah for the trees. And there actually is a halachic relevance to um, the, this day of Tubishvat. Uh, technically speaking, it's when the trees stop absorbing water from the ground and instead, instead they now draw nourishment from their sap. Um, the halachic relevance is that um, fruit that has blossomed before Tubishvat could not be grouped together and tithed with fruit that blossoms after Tubishvat. So that's the halachic significance of the day. Um, but it's a day, so, it, it, you know, it's obviously referring to Eretz Yisrael. It's a day when we, when we, um, when we think about the fruits of the land of Israel. And of these laws of, of tithing only apply to the land of Israel. And so certainly Tubishvat is a day when we remind ourselves of our connection to the land of Israel, of our love for the land of Israel, and of the, um, and of the great blessing that Hashem has given the Jewish people to have a state of Israel. Um, in the land of Israel. And therefore, it's customary on Tubishvat to eat from the fruits for which the land is blessed, for which the land is praised. As it says in the Torah, in Devarim Ches Ches, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 8, verse 8. So the Torah tells us, Eretz Chita it's a land, Israel is a land of wheat and of barley, Vegefen Uta'ina Verimon, a land of grapes and of, of Figs and of pomegranates, Eretz Zais Shemun Udvash, a land of olive oil and of honey, which is referring to date honey from from dates, from the date palm. So Eretz Israel, these are called the Shiva Saminim, the seven species for which Eretz Israel is praised. And therefore on Sunday night and on Monday we make an effort to eat from these fruits and to remember the these uh, fruits are praised in the land of Israel and they're unique and special. In the land of Israel, we and some people actually have interestingly what's called a Tubishvat Seder, and they um, there are many different um, Kabbalistic references to Tubishvat and to the um, to the different fruits and the shells around fruits, and they represent the clippers, which are negative spiritual forces in the world. There's a lot of deep lessons to be learned from trees themselves. The Kabbalists wrote in detail about the tree and how the tree functions and it is a microcosm of the universe, how God runs the world and how um, all life in this world is drawn from the spiritual roots on high. So it's like an inverted tree that we draw from the highest spiritual worlds. Um, and the tree is also a, a symbol of the life of a human being. Um, and uh, and the the life Adam ki etzasali the pasuk says that a person is like the tree of the field. So one of the 
Um, so, therefore, a Tubishvat Seder is quite common in the Jewish world, certainly in the, in the uh, Hasidic world is a common thing that the Hasidim go with the Rebbe and they have a Seder, Tubishvat Seder, many deep, beautiful lessons are learned. At once, Tubishvat Seder recently, uh, one of the great Hasidic Rebbe's of our time shared, uh, uh, shared a beautiful message. He said that if we look at a tree, so a healthy tree is only, um, if it has healthy roots, if the roots of the tree are weak and are not healthy, so the tree will not last very long. The tree will not survive. And uh, as soon as a storm comes, so it will blow over that tree. And he said human beings are the same. We will only survive the storms that we face in our lives if we have strong roots, if our roots are healthy and if our roots are deep into the ground. And what are the roots of a Jew? The roots of a, a Jew is when we are connected to our past, we connect it to our ancestors, we connect it to the history of the Jewish people, the rich, powerful, beautiful history of the Jewish people. And it's important that we don't sever our roots, but we are well attached to them. And... Uh, so that's really the challenge in our times if we want to ensure that we and our children and our descendants after us follow in the ways of our people, in the ways of Klal Yisrael. So we have to ensure that there is a healthy connection to our roots. And that's not such an easy thing to do. How do we connect ourselves to our roots, connect our children and our grandchildren to our roots? So, and that certainly is one of the main jobs of a parent in this world, of a grandparent in this world, of uh, rabbonim, of teachers and educators, is to ensure that the next generation has a healthy connection to our roots. And it's not a simple thing. It's a very challenging thing in our time, especially in the modern world where the influences are so great and there's so, so much material, so much information, so many ideas that are we are bombarded with, that we have and our children have access to, um, that the only way, I think, to ensure that we have strong roots and a strong connection to our roots is if it's authentic. If we have an authentic relationship with Hashem and with the Jewish people and we genuinely understand with a depth what it means to be a Jew, what the value what value it is to be a Jew. It's not just simply our ethnic background and our cultural history. To be a Jew is much deeper than that, is much more powerful than that, runs at the heart of all the, of the purpose and the existence of the world and our, and our life in the purpose of our life in this world. So unless that's clear in our minds and something that we live with, and we translate into our behavior in our lives, so then it will be superficial. So then it will be weak. So then our connection will be flimsy. And in our world today, where the storms blow very strong from all directions, flimsy roots are just not going to do the job of holding up the tree and keeping us connected to our history 
and our destiny. So it's very important that we first and foremost within ourselves and within our own lives understand what it means to be a Jew and have a deep spiritual connection to our Jewish neshama, to our soul, um, and to Hashem and to God. And if we don't have that, I don't think it's going to go. I just don't think it's going to be strong enough. You know, what used to be a quaint, sweet, cultural, nostalgic connection to our past is not enough to hold our loyalty, our connection, our ongoing um, endurance uh, with regards to being a Jew in this world. And so first and foremost, we have to be authentic ourselves. We have to understand ourselves, what it means to us to be a Jew and why that is relevant and important. And then hopefully we'll have a chance of transferring that, of passing that over to our children, to the next generation and each individual has their own journey in life and has their own experiences and has their own choices. But if they were given an example and a um, model of how what it means to really be a Jew and how that really lifts us and guides us and inspires us and directs us and gives us meaning and purpose and connection to eternity, if our children have a a um, picture in their minds of what that actually is. So then there's maybe a chance that they would be choose to carry on that for themselves. But if it's a weak, superficial connection um, based on on um, on quaint, historical, you know, uh, cultural uh, uh, aspects, cultural, you know, sweet little cultural connections, I don't think that's enough to keep. Um, the next generation connected and proud and continuing as Jews. So that was my one thought about Tubishvat is that the Rebbe, this Rebbe said that the roots have to be strong and healthy and that comes through a lot of hard work in our own lives and providing that example to our children. Um, and the second point he made, which I think is also a very beautiful point, is that on Tubishvat we also think about producing fruits. So Tubishvat is the Rosh Hashanah, Lanos, the Rosh Hashanah of the trees. And one of the primary functions of a tree is to produce fruits. And Adam, um, Eitzasadi, a human being, is the tree of the field. And we too have to produce fruits in our lives. So where are the fruits of our labors? What is the focus of our lives? And how do we actually produce fruits in our lives? So um, there's an interesting Gomorrah, which is really a Brisa, that we say every day. The responsibility, the, the halacha says that we all, every morning need to say, we mentioned only birkas hashacha, the blessings, the morning blessings. Um, and one of them is shasali kotsarki, about shoes. And we also are all supposed to say birkas ha the blessings of the Torah every day. We're not supposed to learn Torah or say words of Torah, um, unless we've said these blessings every morning, the birkas ha-Torah. They can be found on page 16 of our article Sidur. And uh, we say, We say, Which is the same blessing that we say when we get called up to the Torah for Aliyah. So once we said those two blessings, we then learn some Torah immediately. We learn a Pasuk from the Torah from Bamidbar, which is Birkas Kohanim, Then we say a Mishnah from Peah, Elev Devarim, Shanim, Shir. There are certain things that have got no limit. There's no, um, there's no prescribed measure of them. And then we say, we quote the Gomorrah in Shabbos, um, which is a Brisa, 
and we say ele devarim she adam oichel perosechem boilam hazeh va'keren kayemes lo lo oilam hava. These are the things that a person enjoys of their fruits in this world, and their principle remains intact in the next world. So by doing these actions, it's still we get fruits of our labors that we get rewarded for in this world, but the actual principal reward for that action does not get eaten up by the fruits we get in this world. It remains fully intact in the next world. Um, so what are these actions? So the Rebbe said that we should perhaps think about these fruits that the Brisa mentions in Shabbos, um, and we should work on them. We should think about all of them. Perhaps this Tubishvat identify one of them in which we should uh, be working extra hard and that we place our focus on. So I'm going to mention this list to you. And um, what are they? Kivud Avaim honoring parents, Ugumilus Kasarim doing acts of kindness, Ashkamas Beisamidus Shachris for Arvis, coming early to Shul, morning and evening, coming to Davin, Davin Shachris, Davin Mariv in the Shul with the Minion, and come early, be part of the first ten. Achnasas Orachim, um, having hosting guests, Bikur Chulim, visiting the sick, Achnasas Kala, assisting a bride in her wedding expenses, Ulavaya Sames, attending a funeral, accompanying a person when they passed away, Tfila, having concentration in one's davening, I'm bringing peace between one and their fellow, the Talmud Torah Kaneged Kulam, and the learning of Torah is Kaneged Kulam, is on a par with all of them, is on a par with this entire list. In other words, if all of them are on one side of the scale and Torah is on the other side, so Torah would stand up to all of them. So these are some of the fruits that a person builds in this world if one does these things properly and they remain intact for them in the next world. So on Tubishvah, perhaps we should look at this list and think about which areas upon this list need work in our lives. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. So let's continue with our understanding. So we've been, uh, we've been, uh, talking about the, the calendar, um, and we, let's now move on. Um, to the interesting, um, to the interesting parshas that we're reading right now. We're in the parshas of Shovavim, which are the six parshas that we've been reading from Shmuish, um, Va'era, Bo, Bashalach. So we're going to go into the fourth one of, of Shovavim. We're halfway. And then Yisro Mishpatim. And Bashalach is obviously a very, very powerful Torah reading, which is the climax of the Jews leaving Mitzrayim. That's when the Jews actually come out of Mitzrayim. Uh, we've seen now the ten plagues, and the Jews are uh, have left, and now the Egyptians decide to follow them. And the Jews reach Yamsuf, reach the sea, and the sea opens up. And well, before the sea opened up, so um, Hashem says to Moshe that Daber El Israel speak to the Jewish people and tell them to go into the sea. It hasn't split yet. And some of them go in and Nachshon ben Aminadav, who's the head of the Shevet of Yehuda, he's the first one to go in at uh, following Moshe's instructions. And it's at night 
Um, I don't know if you've ever been to the sea at night, but the sea is very daunting and fright, frightening at night. This, it's this black mass of water, and he heads right into the sea, Nachshon, and he goes deeper and deeper. He goes waist height, chest height, nothing. The sea covers his mouth. He still keeps going. As soon as the sea touches his nostrils, and by the way, there were thousands of people that had now followed. He went in, and the thousands followed. As the sea touches his nostrils, so it opens up. And it opens up according to the Midrash. Each of the tribes had their own channel, had their own um, pathway through the sea. It opens up 12 times, and each of the tribes now walk through and get to the other side. The Egyptians see the sea has split open for the Jews, and they um, are, are pursuing them, they're chasing them, and they on their horses and chariots now also run into the sea, and the sea then crashes down and closes on the Egyptians. And the Jews witness unbelievable miracles, miracles that are beyond description. Um, and uh, they, they um, after having witnessed this together in unison, sing Shira, what's called Shira Sayam, the song at sea, which is the beautiful song that um, we read in the Pasha this week. And uh, they say the words, This is my God, and I will glorify him. Um, they could point to Hashem. They had what's called, what the Nasiv Shalom calls, Emuna Chushis. Emuna with their own senses, with their own physical um, senses. They could see Hashem in a very, very powerful way, even more powerful than Yecheskel ben Buzi, than the most uh, powerful of all the prophets. That was the level of revelation that the Jewish people experienced at the sea. There's an amazing piece in the Ogedaliah, and, and he points something else. He says, there's a Midrash that says, until the Jewish people came through and sang Shira, there was no Shira in the world. But the Midrash says there were a number of other times, and there are other, other examples beforehand in Jewish history where individuals did sing Shira, like Adam Arishon and others. Um, but the Midrash says that, so how do we understand this, the, you know, the, the, this statement of the Midrash? Um, and the Midrash continues and says, when they sang Az Yashir Moshe, so it was a tikkun to me Az Bati El Paro. So the, the, the song of the sea starts with the words Az Yashir Moshe Meshach. Then they sang, um, the Moshe and the Jewish people. Um, so the Midrash says, so that is a tikkun to, that is almost a rectification of the word as that was said by Moshe earlier when he said me as Bati Aparo. From when I came to Paro, he, when he first went to Paro and said to Paro, let the Jewish people out. So Paro's response was very negative. And he said, um, who are you? Why should I do such a thing? Well, if this is what you're wanting, we're only going to make it more difficult for them. And he uh, intensified the oppression and the suffering of the Jewish people. So Moshe goes Back to Hashem and says, Me as from the time I came to Paro, Haroisip got only worse for the Jewish people, it didn't get any better. So the Az Yashir now is a vindification, is a tikkun of that, those words as. And the Beis Alev explains this midrash and he says a beautiful thing. He says, Because Moshe now understood at Yamsuf at the sea that even in the times of suffering and trauma, it was all part of Hashem's plan to ultimately bring the Jewish people out. So this revelation that they had after the sea drowned the Egyptians was that everything that happened to them up to now was part of the story. 
was part of this journey. And even the hard times, even the times of suffering were a necessary component to reach this point. We're part of Hashem's master plan in order to save and redeem the Jewish people. And that's actually what the Gemara Gittin says. The Gemara Gittin says that part of what that says, Mi ba'alim Hashem, who is like you amongst the celestial beings, Hashem. But ba'alim, the Gemara says, is also from the word ilam, which is silent. So who is like you, Hashem, where even when you're silent, even at the times of Hashem's silence, when it seems like Hashem is not responding, um, even then, we recognize now that it, Hashem is orchestrating and carrying things out. They came to the point and realized that just as we make a blessing on the good, so to make a blessing on the bad as well. That is the the power of of Kriyas Yam Suf, and that was the power of the Shira that they sang. And that's why the Sfas Emes says that um, Purim is a similar kind of of uh, mindset that Klai Yisrael reached. In other words, at Yam Suf, when they got through the sea, they realized that everything is a part of Hashem. Everything is for the good. Even though temporarily it's painful and there's suffering and there's trauma, absolutely, certainly there is in this world, but that all is part of Hashem's master plan and ultimately it's for the good. And he says that's why when Mashiach comes, it's like almost a Oilam Haba, a um, next world perspective, because in next world we'll see that everything is good. So uh, when Mashiach comes, we'll still have the festival of Purim, because on Purim we realize that it was all part of Hashem's plan. Hashem was orchestrating everything, and that will be the reality when Mashiach comes. When Mashiach comes, we'll understand that properly and clearly, like they did at the sea. So that's what Sfasemin says that we still will have the festival of Purim will be appropriate, and when Mashiach comes as well. So that was the level that Klayusar reached, and that's why the Zohar says. That we, if we say Shira Sayyam every day, which is part of our davening, it's part of Pesukah Zimra, when we say it's Shira Sayyam every day, so, um, we'll be blessed with reaching the next world, with Oilam Haba, because it is an Oilam Haba kind of perspective, that we realize that everything that we're going through in our lives is part of Hashem's plan and ultimately part of Hashem's goodness and Hashem's liberation for us, both on a communal level and on an individual level. Please stay with us, we'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. So let's end off. Also in this week's Pasha, we see the man, the manna. It's called Pasha's Haman. And there's an amazing point to be made about the man of the man that we see. Um, Moshe instructs the people, he says, only enough will be descending upon you, will be, at the, the literally, the word in the Torah is be raining down on you, um, for one day. You can't take extra and save for the next day. So each day, your portion for your household will be sent to you, will fall down and land by your household. And don't take extra. Don't save overnight. You can only take for one day. And that was a great test in Emuna for Klai Israel. We can imagine the three million people. They are all obviously very concerned about feeding their families. They've got big families. How am I going to feed my children tomorrow? Where's the food going to come from, from um, tomorrow? That was a great test for Klai Israel. Moshe said, only take for today. Hashem, as he provided you for today, will provide you for tomorrow as well. And so Klai Israel, it was hard, it was challenging. It was not easy for them to follow that instruction. But they grappled with it and they listened. 
And of all of the three million people in Klai Israel, there were only two that went against that instruction. And that was Dasan and Aviram. So the Torah tells us Dasan and Aviram kept over. They got more than they needed for the day. And they put some aside for the next day. And the, by the time the next day came, it was rotten. That, that which they had put aside had rotted and it was not edible anymore. And it says that Moshe was very upset with them. So the Meshe Chachma asks, Meir Simcha um, of Dvinsk asks, he says, why was Moshe Rabbein upset and unhappy? So it was always a great test in Imuna whether Klai Yisrael would listen to Hashem and trust Hashem not take Israel for tomorrow. And none of them did. And now two did. And it got rotten the next day. It didn't last. So it showed that they did the wrong thing, that Hashem was upset with them, that they were right not to uh, put aside for the next day and take extra. It was actually a great victory in Emunah, a great chizuk, a strengthening of the Emunah. And he answers the, the Meshachachman. He says that Moshe Rabbeinu was upset because that's the purpose of life. The purpose of life is to develop a trust in Hashem, is to follow Hashem's instructions, is to fulfill Hashem's commandments, and to trust in Hashem that it is for the good and is what we're supposed to be doing. And he said now that Dasan Aviram had kept, had not listened to the instruction, and had, it had got rotten the next day, there was no longer a challenge anymore for Klai Yisrael. They knew that um, Hashem would, you know, make it rotten the next day. There was no point. So the challenge and the test of trusting in Hashem was taken away from them. And that's one of the great purposes of life, and that's the great reward that we will receive after our lives if we've successfully done that. And so that's why Moshe was upset with Klai Yisrael. And it's a great lesson, a beautiful teaching of the Meshul Chochmah, is that we're in this world, of course we do our shtadlus, we put in effort, and we try hard, and we play our part. We can't just sit back and say, well, Hashem will take care of everything. That's not the Jewish way. The Jewish way is to put in effort, and to put in effort to earn a living, and to put in effort in every area of our lives, our health, and of our relationships, and our connection with God. But once we've put in what's regarded as normal effort, a normal amount of hishtadlus, so we then learn in our minds psychologically to let go and to write it off, to hand it over to Hashem. And it's up to Hashem. That's one of the great challenges of life. That's one of the great areas of growth and development. And that's one of the great purposes of each individual in this world. Learning to hand over to Hashem, learning to trust God, learning to surrender to the creator of the universe who gives us everything, all that we have in our lives, you know, from our health to our families to our parnosa to everything that happens to us. It all comes from above. That We are not in control of those things. Um, and it's Hashem in control. And the, the ability to make that step psychologically in our minds is a great growth for a human being and one of the purposes that we exist in this world. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful day.